I'm honored to be able to speak tonight again to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And it's always a delight to be with people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God and the Gospel is the power of God to salvation now even as it was about 2,000 years ago. As was mentioned earlier, we do have some visitors with us tonight and we're thankful that you've come our way and hope to see you again soon. Now, if you have plans to be in the panhandle of Florida uh, sometime in the next week, I also have plans to be down there. God willing, I'll be traveling on Saturday to begin a gospel meeting at Liberty, Florida on Sunday, uh, next Sunday, and we'll go through Thursday. Liberty, well, if you're traveling south on Highway 331, you pass a little place called Sweet Gum Head, okay? And there's a congregation at Sweet Gum Head, and Liberty's right on down the way. Uh, the Liberty Church is a little country church. They supported us the entire time that we were overseas, going back to 1982. But uh, I know a lot of people from this area head down to the Panama City and Destin area, not real far from, from Panama City. So if you're going to be in that area and want to know more details, uh, talk to me and I'll get you uh, pointed in the right direction. You know, we make choices every day. Some of those choices may not amount to much. It may be a difference in, in setting the alarm clock for, you know, 5.30 or 5.35. Well, you see, that may not make much of a difference to you, but five minutes to me is, is a big difference. Or maybe simply a choice of, of wearing blue or wearing black or wearing green or, or some other color. It may be a choice of where we're going to enjoy our meal together. Uh, so some of those choices are not as significant. I've chosen to push a button several times, and now it's working. Brian is my man. I don't care what you say about Brian. He is my man this week. Uh, but you know, other choices in life, they're more important. When young people are considering, once they complete a certain level of studies, maybe they want to get their GED, Maybe they want to get a high school diploma. Well, what then? Will it be going for further education? Will it be going for a job? Will it be going for a job temporarily and then back to furthering their education? Will it be working as we study? And then as we pursue our studies or go right into a job, we're concerned about, well, what type of job? Where do I want to work? And at some point in the lives of many humans, that special man or that special woman comes along and we have other interests. And then we entertain the thought of marriage. And then we think about having children. And we think about whether we're going to spend Thanksgiving at her place or at my place. So a lot of decisions in life. But all of those decisions which I've mentioned so far are connected with matters on this temporary material planet but God has blessed us not only with a physical body and a material planet God has blessed us with an eternal spirit or eternal soul that is there's a part of us that will live forever and the greatest decision that you or I or anyone else could ever make is connected with the well-being of our eternal soul and as Brother Jim has indicated, we've been talking in our series of lessons this week about the greatest things. 
the greatest things that God has made available to mankind. And tonight then we're, we're putting the spotlight on man's reaction to the wonderful message that God has given to us. Last night we talked about the greatest message that you and I will ever hear. And tonight then we're talking about our response to that message, the greatest decision that you or I or anyone else could ever make. As we study the Bible, we find that throughout history, God has called on the human race to make decisions. God has called on the human race to decide whether they want to be with God or not with God. If they want to be all in with God or not be all in with God. For example, we think about Joshua's message. When Joshua was near the end of his life, he gathered the Israelite people together and he gave them this charge. But before he gave them this charge, he reminded them about all of the wonderful ways in which God had blessed them and their forefathers. And so we read that in Joshua 24 and verse 14 that Joshua charged the Israelites saying, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. But he went on to tell them that if it seemed evil unto them to serve him, choose this day. And he, gave, he mentioned some options. Now just because Joshua mentioned more than one option, that did not mean that every option was pleasing in God's sight. For instance, Joshua mentioned you could serve the God whom your father served on the other side of the flood, that is on the other side of the Euphrates. You could serve the gods of Egypt where you did live. You could serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell, or you could serve Jehovah God. And then, of course, he said this, the thing that we're all familiar with, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua called on the people to make a choice. We further read in the Old Testament, it was several hundred years later, one of God's powerful prophets a man by the name of Elijah. Elijah lived on the earth at a time when the most corrupt king in the history of Israel was on the throne. You'll recall that after Solomon died, God's people divided into two nations, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. We often refer to it as the northern kingdom. And in the history of the northern kingdom, there were 19 kings. Every one was evil. And the most evil among the evil was a man by the name of Ahab. And there at Ahab's side was a woman by the name of Jezebel who stirred him up to be as wicked as possible. And so it was in the days of Ahab and Jezebel that Elijah gathered at Mount Carmel Mount Carmel with hundreds of false prophets, false prophets of Baal. And he challenged the people. And he challenged the people as recorded in 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. If the Lord, if Jehovah is God, then follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. 
and the people said not a word. And you remember what happened. There was a challenge. That the false prophets, they went first and, and they called out in the name of their God over and over and they cried, cried out louder and louder and there was no response. And Elijah told them to take water and, and douse the offering in that whole area so it was just dripping and overflowing with water. And he called out to the God of heaven and fire came down and burned it up. And the people fell before the God of heaven and said, Jehovah, he is God. He is God. Well, it's one thing for a person in a moment of fear to say something like that. And it's another thing entirely for an individual to make a commitment to carry out service to the Lord regardless of what happens. But just as Joshua called on the Israelites to make a decision, so Elijah the prophet did the same. We read these words of Jesus in the first book of the New Testament in Matthew 6 and verse 24. No man can serve two masters. And went on and said in the same breath, you cannot serve God and mammon. We must make a choice. We think about our brothers and sisters in the first century who were part of the church in Laodicea. What is it you remember about the church in Laodicea? Lukewarm, right? Jesus said, I would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spew or vomit thee out of my mouth. And that's a call for those who have already become God's children to be committed and put the Lord first in our lives. But as we continue our study of this topic, not only is it true that throughout history, God has called on people to make a decision, it's also true in Matthew 11 that we read that Jesus invites people to come and follow him. Now, if you're familiar with the affairs of, of Southeast Asia, then perhaps you know or remember when they talk about calling someone, they often don't do it like we do here. When we talk about somebody to come over here, we may use one finger or we may use our hand like this. But in Southeast Asia, in most places, it's like this, okay? We're not, it's not waving to somebody. They're not waving. They're saying, come over here. But Jesus gave that invitation. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give thee rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And, and so, so Jesus invites people to come to him. Look in your Bible, if you would, in John chapter 6. Not only is it true that Jesus invites people to come to him, but it's also true that God the Father attracts people or pulls people, or draws people to Jesus. It's the Father's will that all humans follow Jesus. And so the question then arises, how does God accomplish that? How does God the Father get people to follow Jesus? Well, look in your Bible, if you would, in John chapter 6. Here's a part of a message that Jesus spoke as he was in a synagogue in Capernaum, speaking about the bread of life. Look in your Bible in John chapter 6 and verse number 44. No man can come to me. This is what Jesus said. No man can come to me 
except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, now as you look at verse 44, and you analyze what you read in that verse, there are two facts, two statements of fact in verse number 44. The first statement of fact is, unless the Father draws a person, that person cannot come to Jesus. And the second fact there in verse 44 is, Jesus will raise up such a person, the one that comes to him, Jesus will raise up such a person at the last day. So, so in verse 44, in terms of drawing people to Jesus, we read this fact. If God doesn't make it happen, it's not going to happen. Again, that brings us back to the question, how does God do that? What is the means that God uses to draw people or pull people to Jesus? Well, here's a case. We don't have to run to another book of the Bible to try to find the answer. We don't have to lay our Bibles down and close our Bible and begin to guess what we think the proper means is. All we do is we keep reading. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Now here's what you see. When you look at verse 44, and you compare it with verse 45, in both verses, what is there that those verses have in common? Well, the common element of verse 44 and verse 45 is the idea of God drawing people to Jesus, or people coming to Jesus. In verse 44, what do we learn about coming to Jesus? In verse 44, we learn, unless the Father draws a person, no one can come to Jesus. In verse 45, what do we learn about coming to Jesus? The one that comes to Jesus is the one who has heard and learned. Heard what? Heard the word of God. And learned from whom? Learned of the Father. So, so it's really quite straightforward, isn't it? Verse 44, the one that comes to Jesus is the one that the Father draws. How in the world does the Father draw people to Jesus? Verse 45 makes it plain. It's through the Word of God that people hear the truth and people learn from the Father. That certainly reminds us of what we read later in the book of John when Jesus was praying for His apostles and then Jesus said, neither pray I for these, that is the apostles, neither pray I for these alone, but for all them which shall believe on me through their word. John 17 and verse 20. How do people become believers? So then faith cometh by hearing, you know the answer, right? And hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. And so Jesus invites people to come to him. And the Father, through the gospel, draws people to Jesus. Now, do people, do people have the capability of rejecting the call of the gospel? They sure do. But God calls people, and God communicates with people, and God draws people and attracts people through the message of the gospel. It's not mysterious. 
It's not miraculous. It's not something I just can't explain it, but I can feel it. It's it said in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus invites, the Father draws, and man's proper response is to believe and submit in obedience. Now look over then in chapter 9. Chapter 9 of the book of John. Here we read about Jesus healing a blind man. And after that healing took place, later that same day, Jesus saw this former blind man in the temple. And Jesus had a question for him. Here's a man that that is blessed tremendously. Here's a man whose day started in a state of blindness. Now then, he doesn't live in a state of blindness. Now then, his eyes have been opened by the Master. And look at the question that Jesus asked him. It's chapter 9 and verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him, the former blind man, that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now here's a point I want to make. Jesus asked the question, Do you believe on the Son of God. And the man's logical response was, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Here we simply make this observation. We cannot expect people to believe in the deity of Jesus unless people have evidence. We cannot expect people to believe that Jesus was the Son of God unless they have opportunity To hear the gospel. And this man needed to hear. And this man needed to learn. But it's not enough simply to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There must be action that goes with that belief. Look over in your Bible in chapter 12 of the book of John. John chapter 12. You say, are we ever going to get out of the book of John? We plan to. We plan to. But look in in your Bible in chapter 12. There's an amazing statement in verse 37. Verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. He did miracles, but they did not believe. And so just because there was miraculous power being demonstrated, that did not mean that everyone was going to believe. You might remember in the case of Lazarus. In the case of Lazarus, what happened? Jesus raised him from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for four days. And some of the people believed, and others ran to the Jewish leaders and told them about the miracle. And what was the response of of the Jewish leaders? What do we, what are we going to do? For this man does many 
miracles. Those people admitted the, mir the miracles that Jesus did, John 11 and verse 47, and they still would not commit to following him. Well, look in your Bible now. So there were some, verse 37, who saw the miracles but did not believe. Now look at verse number 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of God more than the praise of, I'm sorry, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Let's pause for a moment and ask this question. According to verse 42, did these people believe or not believe? So, well, I don't think they really believed. Well, look at your Bible. What does your Bible say in verse 42? Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many what? Believed on him. They believed. Your Bible says so. My Bible says so. Now, what the Bible also tells us is, although they did believe, they were unwilling to confess him. Out of fear and out of a desire to have the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so we might ask the question, can somebody like that, can someone whose faith does not take them to proper action be pleasing in the sight of God? And the obvious answer is no. Jesus said those who do not confess him, those who deny him before men, he will deny before his Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 33. Jesus once asked this question. Now, now what do you think this question means? Jesus asked the question this way. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? That's Luke 6, 46. That's a question. And the question was, again, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Well, by asking the question in that way, what point was Jesus driving home? The point which Jesus was driving home was this. If we're going to call Jesus the Lord of our lives, then what's expected of us? We should obey what he says. The Lord Jesus said, if any man will come after me, if any man desires to come after me, Luke 9, 23, let him do what? Let him deny himself and let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, in the English language, it comes around real spiffy in that verse. I mean, it's real, real easy to see those D words in Luke 9 and verse 23. Desire, deny, and daily. And so it's not simply a matter of, of in our mind recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's being ready to make that commitment to do what he wants us to do. Now, the third point, we, we passed it. The screen is not cooperating, or I'm not cooperating, but life will go on, okay? There we go. God has arranged all spiritual blessings in one place. What place? In Jesus. Look over in your Bible, if you would, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Are spiritual blessings available to humans? Yes. Who has arranged those blessings? God has. And where are those blessings arranged? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Beginning in Ephesians 1 and verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Where? In 
Christ. Again, where? In Christ. Verse 4. According as He hath chosen us, where? In Him. In Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world or the age. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Verse 7. In whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Now, God's goodness, God's graciousness makes spiritual blessings available. Where? It's quite, quite easy to see, isn't it? Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in Christ. Verse 7, in Christ. What's in Christ? Verse 7, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's in Christ? God's chosen people, verse 4. What's in Christ? Verse 3, all spiritual blessings. Now, what does that tell us about a person who's not yet in the Christ? That person has not yet had access to or obtained the spiritual blessings that God has prepared. Where is there no condemnation? In Christ, Romans 8 and verse 1. Where is salvation? In Christ, 2 Timothy 2.10. And as we talked about last night, where is eternal life? This is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son, 1 John 5 and verse 11. And so the question ought to be this. If I'm a person that's lost outside of Jesus, and I know that all spiritual blessings, including salvation and forgiveness, are available only in Jesus, then the natural question to ask is what? How do I get into Jesus? Now, now one of the most common doctrines in the denominational world, not only in, in Tennessee, but throughout the whole world, is this. Pray the sinner's prayer. If you believe in Jesus, then pray to the Lord and God will wash away your sins. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. And so I remember reading in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to, to forgive us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, the Bible says that, but please don't miss this thought. 1 John 1 and verse 9, was that written to Christians or to people who are still outside of Jesus? Answer written to Christians. How do we know that? Because in chapter 2 of the book of 1 John and verse number 12, John says your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So yes, the Bible says if we confess our sins, God will forgive us. But that's a blessing and a promise only for those who are already in the Christ. You can study the book of Acts, which is a message about how lost people became saved people. It's a message about how people came out of darkness into light. And when you study the book of Acts, you don't find the early disciples telling lost people, look, if you want to get into Jesus, you pray into Jesus. Look, you can't pray into Jesus. And I'll tell you another thing you can't do, even though some in the 21st century seem to be leaning in that direction. Here's another thing you cannot do. You cannot pray and get into a denomination and then transfer membership from a man-made body into the Lord's body. Okay? Because you can't pray into the Lord's body. And, and you can't transfer membership from a man-made religious group to be in the Lord's body. Now you can get into the Lord's body and go astray by becoming entangled in denominationalism. 
But it doesn't work the other way. And so all blessings are in Jesus. Well, how do you get into Jesus? If you don't pray into Jesus, if you don't believe into Jesus, if you don't repent into Jesus, if you don't confess into Jesus, how do you get into Jesus? Well, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he talked about a transition, a transition that had taken place in their lives. What was that transition? Well, in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, the Bible says, But God be thanked that ye were, past tense, ye were the servants or slaves of sin. But, here's a change, here's a contrast, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered you, being then made free. When were they made free? When they obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine or pattern of doctrine delivered them. Being then made free, ye became the servants of righteousness. So there was a transition. In their past, outside of Jesus, they were the slaves of sin. They obeyed from the heart, and what happened? Well, when did that happen? You look up in that same chapter, back up in verse 3, and the question is asked, Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? So how did those people get into Christ? Baptized into Him. Baptized into His death. Somebody says, No. You can't prove anything by asking a question. Sure you can. Remember we just quoted from Luke 6 and verse 46? It was a question. Jesus said, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? The conclusion is, if you're going to have Jesus as Lord, what's required? You do what he says. Paul asked a question. Know ye not, don't you know? And then he states the fact that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Listen, I know that some are accusing us of being legalistic. I know that some are accusing us of focusing only on baptism. Both of those charges are false. Here's something that is true. There's not a person living in our time who can get into Christ without doing so through water baptism. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, here's a thought though as we move along to our, our next point, and that is when one hears the gospel, he's got to make a choice. As you and I study the book of Acts, we sometimes call that the book of what? Book of conversions. You know what would also be an accurate description of the book of Acts? Book of non-conversions. Right? Day of Pentecost, about 3,000. I do not know how many Jews were assembled on that day. Many Bible students estimate at least half a million. Think about those percentages. Think about those percentages. We are in awe of 3,000 people. That's a lot of people. But 3,000 people in comparison to half a million? Those aren't very good odds. And so in the book of Acts, we read about acceptance of the gospel and we read about rejection. And in my mind, a passage that, that clears it all up or, or makes it come in, in summary statement is Acts 28 and verse 24. And some of them, when Paul was preaching in Rome, and some of them believed the things which were spoken and some of them believed not. What would you and I expect? 
What would you and I expect if we had the opportunity to teach a, a large group of people today? We would expect some to believe and we would expect some not to believe. And in the book of Acts, over and over again, we see cases of non-conversion. Thankfully, there are also cases of conversion. And one of those that comes to mind is Acts chapter 2. When Peter had preached to the people, and he said, as we read beginning in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What was Peter's answer? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from, from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, there were added to them about 3,000 souls. Now, you and I look at that historical record, and perhaps we use the language, on that day, that group of people obeyed the gospel. Here's a question for you tonight. That terminology, obey the gospel, is that Biblical. Look in your Bible, if you would, in the book of 1 Peter, almost to the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter, in every chapter, as our Bible is divided into five chapters of 1 Peter, Peter in every chapter talks about the trials that early Christians were facing. Some of those trials were in the form of suffering, and some of their suffering was in the form of persecution. And here at the end of chapter 4, he again talks about suffering. Verse 16, a familiar verse. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Well, look at verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be of them that what? Obey not the gospel of God. Now here, Peter mentions a scenario in which people do not obey the gospel. Well, obviously, if it's possible not to obey the gospel, then there is such a thing as what? Obey the gospel. In fact, I find personally, I personally find the instruction at the end of 1 Peter 4 and running into 1 Peter 5, I find it very helpful in, in showing others the meaning of the word Christian. Okay? The word Christian, by definition, does not mean a believer in Jesus. Now, now listen carefully. Every Christian is a believer in Jesus. But the word Christian literally means a follower of the Christ. It would be an imitator and a one who submits to Jesus. But look in your Bible again. Verse 16 is the word Christian. Verse 17, you have the description, the house of God. Question, 
What's the house of God? Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So the house of God is the church. So look, chapter first Tim, I'm sorry, first Peter chapter four and verse sixteen. It's the word what? Christian. First Peter chapter four and verse seventeen, it's the house of God or church. First Peter four and verse seventeen, this one who's a Christian is in God's family or the church. He's one who has done what? Obeyed the gospel. And he's described in verse number 18 as being a righteous person. And reading on into chapter 5 and verse 2, he's part of the flock of God. Which reminds us of this. Any Christian is in God's family. Right? Any Christian in New Testament language is in God's family. How did he get there? Verse 17, he obeyed the gospel. Now go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter and let's make a comparison. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, the language is obey the gospel. Pause with me for a moment. Let me share something with you. I grew up in a denominational background. Okay, I, I was almost 21 years old when I obeyed the gospel. Now maybe other denominational groups were different. But the denominational group that I attended my whole life and whose literature I read until I was almost 21, I had never in my life heard of obeying the gospel. That, that just was not the lingo of that denominational group. Their language was receive Jesus as your personal Savior. Now, now here's why I want to share that with you. You and I may have a solid grasp of what it means to obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. Well, the gospel includes facts, and facts have to be believed. And the gospel includes promises of good things to come. The gospel includes warnings, and the gospel includes commands. You can't obey facts. Jesus died for our sins. That's a fact. You can't obey it. You can believe it. When one obeys the gospel, he is submitting to the commands of the gospel to believe and repent and be immersed for the remission of sins. I'm sharing this with you for this reason. If you're talking with a denominational person and you use the terminology obey the gospel, don't be surprised if that just goes right over their head. I'm not saying, I'm not at all saying anything about their intelligence. They're simply not accustomed to that terminology. So don't assume if you talk about obeying the gospel that they're going to know what you mean. It's very important in teaching people that we be able to speak in such a way that they understand. Now, are you still in 1 Peter? Me too. Look back in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls. How? In obeying the truth. Through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another fervently, being born again. How? Not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Let, let's make a comparison. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter and verse 17, the language is obey the gospel. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, the language is souls were purified by what? Obeying the truth. When one obeys the truth, according to chapter 1 and verse 23, he's born again. What does that do if he's born again? He gets into what? God's family. So look at the comparison. Let me slow it down and say it more clearly. Chapter 1, obey the truth, born again. Chapter 4, verse 17, obey the gospel in God's family. Question, what's the difference between obeying the gospel and obeying the truth? There is no difference. That's one and the same. And so people, that's the greatest decision that a person could ever make. To obey the gospel of Jesus, to become a genuine follower of Jesus. You want to talk about wisdom? Jesus made this statement. Jesus said, if a man hears the things that he says and he does them, Jesus said, I will liken or compare him to a man who built his house on a what? On a rock. You see, that little children's song, it didn't just drop out of the sky. It's based on Matthew chapter 7, right? The wise man builds his house on a rock and the floods come and the storms come and the winds come and the house stands for Jesus said, that's like a person who hears what I say and he goes and he obeys it. That is a wise person. And Jesus said, the foolish man, he hears what Jesus says and he goes away and he doesn't do it. But let's think tonight as we close this lesson. Let's think not only about those who have not yet obeyed the gospel, But let's think about those of us who have obeyed the gospel. The wisest decision is not simply to obey the gospel and become a part of God's family, but it's to keep on serving the Lord faithfully. As you and I study that book of Hebrews, over and over we see this idea of holding fast without wavering. We read over and over about holding fast until the end. What about you tonight? If you've made that great decision to obey the gospel and follow Jesus, are you holding fast? Maybe tonight some of the things we've said have helped us as we prepare to think about reaching out to others with the gospel. There's also a need for us to look up to heaven tonight in gratitude. Gratitude that someone loved us enough, loved us enough that they took the time to teach us the gospel. God bless you as you strive to serve the Lord and and live for His glory. We've already talked tonight about what one must do to become a child of God. If you've not done that, the invitation is ready. Or maybe you need the prayers of the saints. If it's convenient, would you stand as we sing to encourage each other?